Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 11. And then flip to 12, because that's one we're reading from. Exodus 12, I meant to say. We're going to pick up in verse 21. Jesus' bones were not broken when he was on the cross. And it's a powerful symbol of how his promises are never broken. The spotless lamb that he is, totally sufficient, capable, and willing to bring a hope for you to every one of his promises. The Bible is a story of redemption. It's a redemption narrative. And it's a story that's to be taught and modeled, shown in ways that the Bible describes. It's a redemption story to be conveyed through these means from the oldest to the youngest, from the furthest to the closest ethnicity, from the highest to the lowest class, if only they would receive, redemption is theirs. Instead of passing over His Son, God's only Son, wrath was taken out on that Son. He lived the life that we could not live in our fallen state. And he died the death we should have died in order to make possible our own new birth, our own death to life experience. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, but God gave his son to die to make us sons. The joy and the pain of Good Friday put together are on display in our text today. Same as they're on display in the Gospel of John when John 19 reminds us that the sacrificial system, the, the ceremony of the law, pointed to and was fulfilled in Christ, the Lamb of God. Consider the descriptive words in the aftermath of Jesus' death on the cross. It says it was the day of preparation so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified by Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, what did they not do? They did not break his legs. Instead, they pierced his side, and blood and water came out of our beloved Savior in his great act of love towards you. And John narrates in chapter 19 that these things took place this way that the scriptures might be fulfilled, the ones that we read today, even. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. 
And you might say, Pastor Matt, well, why does that matter to me? I mean, I understand the gospel for conversion and all of that, but how does that apply to the Christian life? How do I get along with that? Well, the Psalter goes a long way to helping us with that. Because the same as John 19 is looking into Exodus 12, so is the Psalter considering the events and the statements of Exodus 12 about the unbroken, spotless lamb whose limbs were never broken. Psalm 34 says in verses 17 to 22, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Maybe you need to cry for help this morning. Perhaps you're brokenhearted. When the brokenhearted, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Those of you cry, that need to cry out this morning, cry righteously for help from the Lord that hears you. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, the Psalter said, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. You see the groundedness of the promise? Unbroken bones of our Savior. This altar ends that selection with a few more relevant verses. Affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteousness will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of His servants. Are you His servants? Amen, you are. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Now that's an assurance of pardon, isn't it? It ought be for every blood-bought child of God in my hearing. Affliction is shared for all the sons headed to glory. For the Son Christ was punished on our behalf for us. So we must share in Him and in His suffering in this life. But we are not without recourse when we cry. When the righteous cry, the Lord hears. And He grounds that hearing on the unblemished and unbroken Christ who died as a substitute sacrifice for you. And we ought to get that right from the beginning of this message because it's central to Exodus chapter 12. So we'll see with this message simply titled The Final Plague. We'll see how the Passover teaches us that our hearts must be focused on sharing this gospel with those who will believe. Whether those who will believe are children, whether those who will believe are our current adversaries, or whether those who will believe are foreigners to our way of life, our heritage, and where we're going. And so, as we read God's Word, let us consider those three things on their parts, listen in verses 21 to 28, for how our hearts should be focused on sharing with those children who believe, will believe. And then when we look at our second section in verses 29 and following, let's consider how our hearts should be to share the gospel with those adversaries that we have in this life, some of which will follow. And then finally, beginning in verse 39 and taking us through the end of the chapter, we'll consider that section of Scripture and we'll consider how a heart should be to share the gospel with the nations, with what we might consider foreigners, or if they were to talk of us, they would consider us foreigners. And so that trifecta today will help you walk through Exodus 12, 21 to 51, children, adversaries, and foreigners.
Please hear now the word of the Lord. Exodus 12, 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land of the Lord that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captain, captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Now verse 39. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner 
shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. May God bless the reading of his word and minister grace unto all who hear. This is the redemption narrative. The plague and the Passover teach us, they instruct that our hearts should be focused on sharing the gospel with children who will believe. Intentional to the children. We see this in this section where the elders convey the meaning of the Passover, the message that will be a teaching tool for future generations, future children. Now, the office of elder in the church may be slightly different than the office of elder in this period over three millennia ago. However, there is significant overlap when it comes to this duty. That is, that the elders are tasked with being precise in conveying how we see the word to the children and to the people. We are to tell it to the people. And as much as the Passover pointed forward to the Lamb of God, so does the Lord's Supper point back to the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The elders, and it might be mentioned here, they're not named. They often aren't. It might be worth saying that elders are to take the counsel of the, the theologian from several hundred years ago with a very interesting name, Count Zinzendorf. Count Zinzendorf said that men of God are to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's pretty good. Except for you're never forgotten. For the one that owns the cattle on a thousand hills and knows the very numbers of hairs on your head knows your name. And, by faith, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so, Zinzendorf knew, and we know, that no elder or any other faithful man or woman is forgotten. Sometimes we need to live that way so that we understand it's not for man that we are to please, but it is God that we are to serve and please. The entire Exodus is about serving and worshiping God rightly. That was the thing that Pharaoh was preventing them from doing. And it's the thing that the elders must not by omission then prevent the people from doing. And so they were included in the loop. They're included in the cycle of telling here. Moses doesn't go straight to the people. He communicates the word of God to the elders. And the elders communicate the word of God to the people. And there's something instructive about that. It was a simple job, really. Communicate the Passover and its message precisely. 
And by extension, every male member of the church shared in this responsibility. They had a job to do, a simple job. Keep the Passover precisely. And by that, I mean today, keep the Lord's Supper. The Gospels leverage the Passover event to explain Christ and to explain Christ as being seen in worship through the elements of the Lord's Supper over and over and over again. Consider 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17 in that the Lord's Supper becomes a, a unifying meal for the people that otherwise might be divided. Unified by the body and blood of the Passover lamb. We would not have reasons for such unity were it not for the unity found in Christ. For our families are quite different indeed. The scripture says, The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation or a fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many form one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So pray that we would be unified. Pray that the message from the elders would be precisely from the word of God. These are weightier matters than you might think. I wonder if you men in the church now might commit to greater humility. I wonder if you men in the church, based on this text today, might consider greater humility that you might be growing in shepherding responsibilities before you're asked and if you're never asked. I wonder if like Titus 1 in 1 Timothy 3, if you men might read those texts of your own volition and see where you measure up to that list and where you fall short. And I wonder if you would be reformed in your life patterns by the Word of God. That we might have many functional elders before we need them. You have an obligation to be all that you can be in Christ. With the salvation that's been given for you, and the time that is given to you in this life, don't flitter it away. Give yourself to the things of God. Aspire to noble things, but with an emphasis on shepherding the flock of God that is among us. And shepherding is not grandstanding. Shepherding is not about titles. Shepherding is not about networking. Shepherding is not about quippiness. Shepherding is not about getting the last word. Shepherding is not about winning an argument. Shepherding is about living and dying with a people that we might all rise again in Christ. And we need elders that convey this message, not just with their words, with their deeds. It's easy for you to think of yourself as not one of those. But that might be exactly why you're not one of those. Read those texts. Lay your life against it. And live as the best shepherd of your own home as you can possibly live. 
Now, I'm not leaving the ladies out of this. I'm just talking to the gentlemen. And here's what I know from counseling with ladies for 20 years. If the gentlemen get this message, they get the point of this point too. They're really happy when that happens because God's way is a better way. We might say about this first section of this text that the first participants were to select lambs for themselves, kill the lamb, take a hyssop herb plant, which had a straight stalk and a a bushy end, and dip it into the blood and spread it on the door. And that the meaning of that messaging was to be conveyed again and again and again and again in a manner that would become boring if it were not so pivotal and true and profound. God knows we need reminders. Taking this was to remind generations later children after children after children, of God's grand plan of redemption for His people. And that would be far from boring. Michael Morales, in his little theology, writes about the historical exodus out of Egypt. More to the point. Listen to what he says in this short two sentences. When the cries of God's people are prolonged for the sake of His glory... That agenda also includes a more lasting good for his people. He's writing about why it seems like he didn't just get them out of there. Why was it 430 years? Once the plague started, why didn't he get them out sooner? Why does he put up with the defiance of Pharaoh? Why, 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 why? And so when the cries in a Psalm 34 sense of God's people over three millennia ago in that context were prolonged over and over. God, how long, O Lord? Just like Revelation says, how long, O Lord, will you let the saints suffer before you bring justice? How long, how long? Just like that. He writes, when the cries of God's people are prolonged for the sake of His glory, that agenda also includes a more lasting good for His people, even for their children and their children's children. Generations later, the great-grandchildren of these Israelites would yet be nursing on the milk, not simply of their mothers, but of God's holy word, recounting His glorious deeds in the Exodus. God's glory became the nourishment and strength and comfort of their children. So this was no mere statute. It was no mere meal. They were preparing midweek with a team of people that prepare sermons, and one of the brothers pointed out, having just baked on this text for a while, that this would have been a terrifying meal. It would have been frightening. I mean, their salvation was ensured by the blood on the doorpost, and, and their salvation was ensured by being inside that house instead of outside that door. Their salvation was ensured by being in the ark of that home. But they would have heard horrific shrieks of death outside. The sounds would have been horrific. It wasn't yet jubilant. As the sound of death rang outside the home, the taste of bitterness digested 
in their stomachs. Bitter herbs. Roasted animal. Unrisen bread. It is a bitter meal on a bitter night. And it is true that salvation is sweet. But for just a glimpse of a moment, we ought to ponder the horror and the bitterness, not simply of our plight, but of those outside of Christ. The severity of sin against a holy God was being taught by elders and by parents and to children in perpetuity through the bitterness and the recounting of this final plague. In a sense, the other plagues almost didn't matter anymore. They were built up to the main event. And the Passover was to recapitulate with pomp and circumstance this event and the divide between those who are under the blood in the house and who are not under the blood in the wild. And it's as if we are to reenact as God's people the meaning of these events listening and developing a heart for those who might come to faith by our sharing of faith. Because the eternal judgment against those outside of Christ is permanent and it is death. They were either struck or spared that night when the clock struck midnight with a full moon on that first Passover and inaugurated feast of the unleavened bread. But they were struck or spared based on what? Well, it was based on, on the basis of the blood being on the door of the house. The Egyptians looked at that and thought, huh. You know, by parallel, that person's about as foolish as Noah building an ark when there's no rain. I don't know what that's about. But fair warning had been given. Exodus 4 records the warning. You let my firstborn go, or I'm going to take yours. He gave them time. Time is being given to every one of you who does not put your faith under the blood of Christ. Time is being given, but midnight will strike for you too. It won't be a joke. It will not be an academic exercise. Your cunning and your cleverness will not get you inside that door. Any more than you could get from the floodwaters into the ark once the door was shut, you will not be able to get into the household of God when the door is shut and the destroying angel comes to righteously bring his wrath on all rebels against God. And that's me and you without Christ. That's me and you without Christ. And my biggest fear for those of you that sit and listen every single week is that somehow you would just slide and glide over the reality that you're dead without Christ. We are praying for you that you might experience the new birth and produce fruit of faith in keeping with repentance to tell of Christ and His wonders. I'm not talking about your capacity or your giftedness or your opportunities or how read, well read you are or anything. I'm talking about whether or not you're under the blood. That's what I'm talking about. 
Are you under the blood? Jesus made it very clear you must be under the blood. John chapter 10, verse 7 says it like this. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. How much more clear can he make it? I am the door of the sheep. I'm the door, he said. He goes on to say, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did, did, list, did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We are to be good shepherds teaching the gospel, teaching it to all the children for joy. My six foot four Uncle Earl Neely on my mom's side would sing with that nasally voice in those cowboy boots, Come to Sunday school, come to Sunday school, we shall come rejoicing, come to Sunday school, come to Sunday school, come to Sunday school, every Sunday morning, come to Sunday school. And that little wooden church house that my granddad made, he was only six foot tall, but he towered, in my opinion, sat right there on the communion table so the children could go to Sunday school and drop their coins in the little box inside of it so they could learn about sacrificing in order to serve the Lord. Now, I'm sure their theology was not everything that you would want it to be, but I'll tell you, there was something about teaching the children and shepherding families and laying down their life for people that some former generations can model for us today. What if it is just as simple as making it a priority to get here on time to get your children to learn the gospel through the Lord's Day's ordinary activities? What if it's just that? One of my brother pastors recently said in a sermon, he said that the old preachers used to say that Jesus rose from the dead. Surely we can get out of bed. Pray in your homes during family worship. You say, I don't know how to worship as a family. Well, we'll help you, but let me just make it very simple. Pray before your meals and read a Bible verse. Start somewhere. Do something. Have a Bible sitting on the corner of your table. Dad, pick it up and read it. If Dad's gone, Mom, pick it up and read it. And pray. Just pray a prayer. I mean, I don't, just pray something. Pray that word. Pray that scripture. We have resources for you. We really are without excuse. We have so many resources. Children, as one said are, are about this text, are naturally inquisitive when they see, in our case, the Lord's Supper. They're inquis they ask questions. What, what do you mean by this service? Give them, always be ready to give them a reason for the hope that you have. 1 Peter 3 is not just a missionary voice verse for the field. It's for your families. They'll ask... And you don't really need to seal the deal with the little ones as much as you need to show and tell. Show them the gospel picture. Talk to them about the Lord's Supper. Tell them of the gospel. Teach them the word. When they ask you if they can be a Christian too, tell them they can through Christ alone. Ask them if they're trusting in the promises of Christ alone for salvation. Answer their questions each step of the way. And pray to God for them to experience the new birth in their hearts that would be cold and dead without it. And one day, they will help us see the word in communion as we are to help them see the word now. Second and shorter point, the final plague in Passover teach us 
that our heart should be focused on sharing the gospel with adversaries who will believe. With adversaries who will believe. Look in your Bible at verse 29 of Exodus chapter 12. It says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and so on. That great cry of death that we've already described. The time comes when everyone must give an account based on the blood substitute atoning sacrifice. Without the blood, there is no sacrifice for sin. We saw in verse 24 that this was to be for your sons forever. A son for a son. But we know that a son for a son points to something even greater. That is God's only son. Dying for us that we might live. It can never ever get old. And we can never say we haven't had for fair warning for what is to come. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ. Abide in Christ. Remain in Christ. I imagine it being said something like this. You drowned my sons in the Nile. You ripped my sons out of their mother's wombs. You ensured their death and your culture of death. I have warned you, Pharaoh, and all those under your leadership. And now, I will do what I said I will do. God's promises are always kept. That which we understand and believe by faith right now will become sight. The day of the Lord will come. The destroying angel will enact righteous judgment. Trust in Christ. What a great lament will be heard on that day. As a great lament was heard on the night that the destroying angel came and did exactly what God promised would happen to Pharaoh's sons. I'm going to take them. You drowned mine, I'm going to take yours. A son for a son. But it doesn't have to be that way for us. We don't have to face death. We have life through Christ. You can trust in Him this very Lord's day. Not all in Egypt took the path of unrepentant Pharaoh, and he was unrepentant. He gave no more than an unrepentant Esau kind of, hey, bless me also, after he'd sold his birthright for little or nothing. This man was wicked and hard-hearted and hard-headed. Don't take him sending them out as some kind of repentance. There is no evidence of that in these texts. But some former adversaries entered through the door of salvation. They came, looking to the Lord, the Passover lamb. They understood it was a fearful thing to fall into the hands of this God. And they marched out in the mixed multitude of the Exodus. Some adversaries, though they have been a part of the problem of your pain and suffering and loss though they have been rightly described as adversarial towards your faith, some will respond and go with you through the exodus of your sins into the salvation of Christ. Some will. 
and you need to keep that category open. Now, it is important that when people come to Christ, as we understand it, that we are careful to see that that person, though we rejoice with them in the emotions of coming to Christ, no doubt, we should be careful to see that that person has a credible profession of faith. Our text today will teach us in our third and final point that after the mixed multitude went out with the Israelites in the Exodus, perhaps that was slaves, perhaps that was folks that had been brought to Egypt to work, that had a chance to leave with the Israelites, perhaps it was some, Israel, it was some Egyptians themselves. But what we will see is that God's people have needed to be careful about affirming who is in the covenant community. We see that particularly in our last section, which is verses 39 to 51. I want to frame this last section by reading a quote from the Net Bible Online, a fine resource to reference free online. And the commentators wrote, The mixed multitude refers to a great swarm of folks who joined the Israelites in the Exodus. People who were impressed by the defeat of Egypt, who came to faith or just wanted to escape Egypt, maybe slaves or descendants of a certain dynasty that had been defeated. The expression prepares for later references to those who would come along and warns them just the same because Numbers declares that some of these mixed multitude were part of the impetus for and the shaping of grumbling and the golden calf incident, things like that. So there is this tension where we share the message of salvation by our lives and our words, and as people are coming into the community, they are vetted. And, and we understand our practice of that to be what we do when we do membership matters and membership interviews, that we talk about these things. It's not that we say that you're not a Christian, so we say we want to hear about how you became a Christian. We want to hear you explain Scripture about the gospel, and we want to teach it to you if you don't know it. So I might just say one more. I don't normally do announcements during the sermon, but if you're in that place where you're a professing believer, but you, you haven't followed the Lord in baptism, or you, you haven't become a member of a Bible-teaching church that's faithful to biblical theology, maybe you should come to that class and have conversations with our elders and grow. It is interesting, this text in particular, this mixed multitude, it's the same Hebrew word for swarm in Exodus 8.21 with the swarms of the flies, possible cognate. They swarmed as they left. It makes me think about salvation and the swarming of believers on the day of the Lord. It makes me very, very thoughtful about that. I hope it encourages you too. The final plague and Passover were to be experienced and reenacted in perpetuity that our hearts would be focused on sharing the gospel, not just with children and those that have been adversarial, the Apostle Paul, anybody? but also with foreigners who will believe. We see in this section that the Lord is watching His people's commemorative acts and how they interact with those foreigners, those outsiders, who become part of the people of God. So if they were intentional with the children and 
urgence in their witness as they left. They're now precise in who comes in and who watches. They're precise in what we might consider the fencing of the Lord's table, to use an old Scottish phrase. They're precise. Numbers come into play in this text. A million or two people based on the 600,000 men that marched out in the Exodus, carrying stuff out with them. They left in haste 430 years to the day since they'd come in. Galatians picks up on 430 years. So does Stephen in Acts chapter 7. This was a to-the-day kind of event, this Exodus. Seared in their minds was the perfect timing of God to get every one of His out. Precise. The concept of, of watch night comes from Exodus 12, 42. But you, you might take a look at that verse again at who's doing the watching. It was a night of watching by whom? By the Lord. Exodus 12, 42. It was a night of watching by whom? By the Lord. To bring them out of the land. It was a night of watching by the Lord. He was watching. He was initiating the salvation of His people. Foreigners come to Christ. If you look at this text carefully, you might, you might think to yourself, well, how can he say that based on this text? How can he say something about foreigners coming to Christ? It says explicitly in verse 45, no foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. No foreigner shall eat of it. It seems pretty clear, right? As I said earlier in the sermon, you could be a foreigner to someone else in today's thinking, and, or, or they could consider you a former foreigner. You could consider someone else a foreigner. We think of of ethnicities. The point is that through that though salvation came through Israel, it wasn't meant to stay there. God builds evangelism into the picture early on in his redemption story in the Bible. In Genesis, you see the promise to Abraham was to bless the nations, Genesis 12:1-3, through the faith of the gospel. He promises that the offspring of Abraham will be a blessing to the nations, plural. So we, too, are to be a welcoming people, but with certain vetting. There are no foreigners in the Lord. Every slave, if circumcised, could be in. Strangers could come near and keep it if they had faith and were circumcised. Strangers could join the congregation of the Lord and become brothers, this text intimates. But those passing through must be passed over by trusting in the blood of the Lamb in order not to need to pass on the Passover meal. To put it in New Testament terms, Jesus took the Passover meal as His last supper And he instituted the new covenant in his own blood. And the Gospel of Luke takes great pains to draw this connection with the timing of the Passover. So there's to be no more Passover meal taken by us in that traditional sense, but rather the Lord's Supper taken by us. And now there's no more animal sacrifice to be made by us or reinstated by us, but rather we worship the risen Lord Jesus who is the ultimate sacrifice, sacrificial lamb. 
That's why, as we said earlier, Christ said, as often as you take this cup and this bread, you are feasting metaphorically on the body and blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. It is always the Lord who brings people up out of their bitterness. Perhaps it's why Hebrews warns us not to let the root of bitterness grow up among us to defile many. Rather, by faith, as Moses had faith when he instituted the Passover, so we, by faith, in Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, we take the Supper by faith, as people of faith, in faith, and for faith. So we derive a principle that honors the warnings of 1 Corinthians 11 and presses the people among us not to take our Passover Lord's Supper without first demonstrating circumcised hearts. And I say that based on the authority of Colossians 2, but also on what Brother David read from the last verse of Romans 2, verse 29, where the text says circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, internal circumcision, the new birth, not from man, but for God. And then, of course, you would follow Christ through the waters of baptism. Consider the informative text written to the church at Galatia first in Galatians 3, verses 24 to 29. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized in the Lord have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, surely that doesn't mean there's no more boys and girls. Uh, Surely that means that we are unified by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And verse 29 is so incredibly helpful of Galatians 3. And if you are Christ's, then you are whose offspring? Abraham's. Way back in Genesis, the promise to the nations was through Abraham and his offspring. And so, who are Abraham's offspring? Are they ethnic Jews? Or are they those in Christ? They're those in Christ. Who, hopefully, ethnic Jews are in Christ. I pray that they all are. But the bottom line is this. Abraham's offspring is not an external circumcision for males only. It is an internal circumcision of the heart for every man and every woman in my hearing. And guess what you are? Your heirs according to the promise. It's just that simple. And He's so gracious. He's so gracious to offer that to us. He's so gracious to assure us of it. I was at a conference this week with some pastors that really blessed my soul. I look forward to telling you more about it in future messages and members meetings. But suffice to say for now, there's a pastor out of Tennessee who's talking to me about this concept of, of how it could be that some would be left outside the door, some would shriek at the horror of the day of the Lord and the destroying angel. And He said something to me It was very, very simple. I think it's very profound, and it's a good way to bring this together. He said, for, 
40 years as a pastor, he's been counseling people that argue about fairness. Fairness. Why don't we let the interested party just take the Lord's Supper? Fairness. Why don't we just let someone stand up and become a member if they decide to one day? Fairness. 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 Pressing it all the way to arguing for God's fairness in a matter of heaven and hell. In and out. Fairness and fairness. And he reminded me we often get in trouble when we argue for God's fairness in a manner that God does not care to argue for his own fairness. And he said profound things about fairness. He said, according to God, on God's terms, fairness would be everybody going to hell. That's fair. Do you want to argue for fairness? Be consistent. He said, but the Bible also says that some are not going to hell. And that's grace. And a meal must be taken as often as we take it to communicate that reality that only some escape from the death, not just of the firstborn, but of their own death, sure and certain result of sin for every single one outside of Christ is eternal death. And if our meal does not convey this distinction, however imprecise our judgments are about membership, for some, in fact, will take it that are not in, and some will pass on it that are, in fact, in. We get that there are conscience issues and all sorts of things going on, but if we aren't attempting to, pre to convey something about this reality with our meal, I am afraid that we are missing an important part of the ordinance itself. Failing to preach the gospel to strangers, robbing evangelism through our corporate witness as an opportunity lacking an opportunity to see the word similarly to how we shape worship through preaching of the word and the singing of the word and the reading of the word and the praying of the word you know we learn later that they don't get the land they don't circumcise their sons we learn later that the israelites fail again and again and again to keep covenant but there is a glimpse in Exodus 12 of something that is true. And that is our statutes should convey something of the gospel to people that might yet not believe, who will one day believe. The final plague in the Passover teach us that our hearts should be focused on sharing the gospel in our words and in our deeds with what we say and with what we see to those who will believe, whether that be the children of the next generation, adversaries in present, or foreigners coming to Christ. You don't know who they are, but you do know what they need, and that is the gospel message. Christ cried for us. He hears our cry. And so let us pause now and consider this Savior who never had a broken bone how he will never have a broken promise for you when you cry to him brokenheartedly and upset. Let's think of that and then let us pray together.